Welcome to Cato Audio for June 2020. I'm Caleb Brown. In this month's offering, Cato's Clark Neely and Jay Schweiker talk about the possibilities for a challenge to qualified immunity at the Supreme Court. Dr. Terrence Keeley discusses the South Korean response to COVID-19 and why it worked so well. Dr. Jeff Singer details what it means for you to have the right to know your COVID-19 status. Cato's Chris Preble details threat perception during a pandemic. Jonathan Adler discusses the changing landscape of marijuana laws. And economist John Cochran discusses pandemic and economic consequences. As of this recording, the Supreme Court is still mulling cases involving qualified immunity. The court invented doctrine that protects cops and other government officials from the consequences of violating Americans' rights. Cato's Clark Neely and Jay Schweiker spoke with me for the Cato Daily Podcast about what the court might do and what they should do. Reuters recently released a report sort of examining cases uh, where civil rights violations are alleged. Uh, Clark, why don't you tell tell me about that? Yeah, Reuters did a really deep dive looking at um, uh, both individual cases and but also sort of on a more macro level to see if they could identify any trends um, in qualified immunity practice. And the answer is yes, they identified a number of interesting trends. I would say that the, the two top line trends that they seem to identify was that uh, courts appear to be getting increasingly favorable um, to police in excessive force cases. So police are more and more likely to win when they assert qualified immunity after they've used force against somebody and been sued for it. Um, And then second, and this gets a little bit inside baseball, but it's really important, um, courts seem to be uh, more inclined to do this kind of um, shortcut approach where instead of deciding first whether uh, a person had their constitutional rights violated, which is the first of the two-step qualified immunity process, and then second, was that violation uh, one of a clearly established right? Um, they just, as the Supreme Court allows them to do, shortcut to the second question, say, well, putting aside whether or not this police officer violated your rights, we're going to hold that it wasn't a clearly established right um, and throw out the case. And of course, the result of that is that constitutional law becomes stagnant. These cases, these issues never get decided. And as uh, Judge Don Willett pointed out in, in a wonderful opinion that he wrote for the Fifth Circuit, uh, the um, the practical result is that police officers can keep committing the same constitutional violation over and over and over again, and we don't get a court ruling saying, um, look, going forward, that is, it is now clearly established in this circuit that you cannot do that thing. And that's a huge problem. Okay. So uh, basically, there's no uh, courts cleverly avoid establishing case law in this area? Yeah. And so they they have the option as Clark was explaining, to like to not decide the merits question. And in, in my sort of anecdotal experience, and it's hard to sort of show this, you know, explicitly empirically, but if you look at some of the cases where this comes up, it's actually often the most difficult, most important cases that present these really close questions um, where the court, you know, take, makes the decision to avoid the hard work of resolving the merits question and instead just you know, says, well, it wasn't clearly established, so we're going to move on. So even though that technically only happens in a you know relatively small fraction of the cases overall, if you have facts that either don't make out a constitutional violation in the first place or 
you know, make out an obvious constitutional violation. That's not really necessary. It's in that gray area where it's a close call that you most need courts to address the hard questions and develop the law. And it's exactly those cases where they're avoiding it. So uh, what else did we learn from this this Reuters report, which I have to say, uh, good timing. Yeah, no, it's it's very good timing uh, right before the, the, the court considers this. And so just to give a little bit more detail on exactly what Reuters looked at, they were they were looking at a little over 500 federal uh, appellate decisions since 2005 um, involving uh, excessive force claims specifically. Now, obviously, qualified immunity doesn't just apply to excessive force or even just to police officers. It applies to all public officials. But they were they were focusing on the excessive force cases in particular. Uh, and and the the analysis sort of breaks down in discrete chunks in sort of like roughly two year periods, uh, the trends in qualified immunity. Um, and and to to elaborate a little bit on what Clark was saying earlier, what you see is overall the win rates for police are going up. So starting from the 2005 to 2007 period, um, the police were only prevailing at the qualified immunity stage in about 44 uh, percent of the cases. Now, on the whole, in the last two years, since 2017, they're winning in 57% of cases. And, and to be clear, when I say win here, what I mean is that, that when, when, when the police win qualified immunity at the appellate stage, the case is over, right? That, that's the end of the case. Whereas if the plaintiffs win, right, if the, court, if the court denies immunity, that doesn't mean the case is over. All that means is that the case gets to go to trial. So, of course, you know, the police might still win at trial. Um, depending on, you know, the way the jury finds the facts. They can still be disputed facts that have to be resolved at a jury trial. So when Reuters is reporting that uh, in only 43% of cases uh, is, is this decision favoring the plaintiff, what that means is over half the time that qualified immunity is raised, the appellate court is throwing out the case before it can even go to trial. So it's an extraordinarily powerful screening mechanism, and it is steadily getting more powerful over time. Um, and then the other sort of distinct trend that we see is an expansion of that class of cases where either A, the court says, yes, there was a violation, but it wasn't clearly established, or B, we're going to skip the question of whether it was a violation at all. So those are sort of really the two areas where qualified immunity is doing the work. And both of those categories are getting bigger over time. All right. So, uh, as of this recording, the court is a few days away from uh, deciding whether or not to take up uh, some of these cases. How uh, favorable are these cases as they exist, do you think, to uh, the court easily coming to the conclusion that this doctrine is uh, a failure? Well, that's um, where we feel pretty confident. This is an extraordinary collection of cases. Uh, the we, I won't try to go through all of them, but I'll, just a few of the issues in these cases involve, for example, there was a case out of California, which is the Ninth Circuit, where the allegation is that police uh, were executing a search warrant in a private residence, and one of the officers simply helped himself to $225,000 uh, in gold coins and cash and stole it while executing this warrant, not for any law enforcement purpose, just to enrich himself. And the Ninth Circuit, in considering the police officer's qualified immunity claim, said, we, it, we know, of course, all of us know that stealing is immoral, but we haven't had a case in the Ninth Circuit where we specifically said that it is unconstitutional. And so we're going to grant qualified immunity. Another example is one where 
um, poli a police officer responding to um, a call about an altercation at a public swimming pool in Nebraska. They, they arrive on the scene and they're reassured that it was not an altercation. It was just some horseplay among some family members. Um, and the, um, uh, the mom of the kids tells the police officer she needs to go check on her, her child, her daughter, because someone's hassling the daughter. And the officer says to the, to the woman, no, you need to stay and talk to me. Now, keep in mind, she's not a suspect. She was the putative victim. And she says, I will talk to you, but I need to go help my daughter. And she turns and begins walking away. And the police officer comes up behind her, gets her in a bear hug, lifts her up off the ground, turns her upside down and slams her head first into the ground, knocking her unconscious and breaking uh, her shoulder. And again, uh, this time, the, the, the full Eighth Circuit on bond. Uh, eight to four says, well, we just don't have a case on point that says you can't pick up an unarmed, unresisting five foot tall woman in a bathing suit and and uh, pile drive her head first into the ground. So once again, qualified immunity. The cases on this uh, the, of, of the 13 cases, there's at least half a dozen that present facts uh, as compelling as the ones that I just described. And uh, I think it would be a real embarrassment and a black eye for the Supreme Court to essentially say, uh, well, you know, it's just too bad that that happened to those people. And, you know, if it makes uh, it, it, you know, if it results in the judiciary relentlessly infantilizing the police by essentially saying, well, how could they have known not to do those things? Um, too bad. Uh, it is certainly possible that the court will do that. But the stain, I think, and the stench that will be left behind if the court uh, allows these rulings to stand um, is something that would be very difficult for me to stomach if I were a member of the court. And courts like uh, facts that allow them to make to render a clean judgment. Is that right? Yeah, uh, and, and I think that's what's one of the things that's nice about these cases is that they they are all extraordinarily compelling facts, but uh, in sort of a wide variety of contexts. So some of these, you know, a lot of these do involve police, but some involve excessive force claims. Uh, some involve, uh, like Clark was mentioning, the theft of private property as a Fourth Amendment violation. Uh, some of these involve prison conditions. So. But what we've basically tried to do from from the, from a strategic uh, perspective and highlighting uh, these really uh, viable cases is give the court sort of a range of options, right? Because it's hard to know exactly which cases they might find most compelling or which ones they you know might be the best vehicle for various alternatives or modifications to qualified immunity. So we've tried to just give them every option possible, um, uh, both in terms of the uh, fact patterns and also in terms of the sort of doctrinal features of the case, because we have some range in terms of whether uh, some of these cases involve the courts finding a constitutional violation, but then granting immunity, whereas some involve them skipping that step entirely. Um, so, you know, I really think that that we, and by we, I mean both Cato and, and the parties and the other amici, really everyone involved in this effort has done everything possible to give the court every conceivable way to address this issue. Um, which is, I think, part of the reason why we're you know, encouraged by the fact that they seem to be looking at all of these together on the same day. Clark Neely is the vice president for criminal justice at the Cato Institute. Jay Schweikert is a policy analyst at the Cato Institute. Why did South Korea perform so well at containing the coronavirus while much of the Western world still struggles? Cato's Terence Keeley believes that it involves the way South Koreans view science and the purpose of it. 
There is a vibrant debate among people about which countries appear to have performed well, uh, which countries appear to have performed poorly uh, in this COVID-19 pandemic that we've had across the globe. If you uh, are a Twitter person, and I uh, regrettably am a Twitter person, there's a chart that made the rounds numerous times. And it is simply, if you look at the doubling rate of the illness, uh, the countries that stand out, Japan and South Korea, and people will draw a big circle around Japan and South Korea and say, masks. And then they show the chart doubling at a, at a much faster rate uh, in countries like the United States and elsewhere, uh, they circle that and say, no masks. And that's obviously oversimplifying things, but uh, to what extent can we attribute uh, culture to uh, the differences in how countries have dealt with this illness? I think masks are about the least important thing. Uh, and I think culture is pretty unimportant. And I think the most successful country is Taiwan, by the way. Taiwan has recorded days this month without a single case. But yes, of course, the great successes are in East Asia. And the great failures, I'm afraid, are in the West. And the United States of America and the United Kingdom are amongst the worst performing countries. So the question is why? And it's much more sophisticated than masks, and yet much, much simpler. So you've simply got to do a timeline. On January the 27th, when South Korea had recorded a total of four cases, the authorities called together in Seoul, the capital, the 20 leading biotech companies in South Korea, and said, we want you to develop a test as soon as possible. They were able to do that because the Chinese government had informed the World Health Organization that they had this disease, and a Chinese scientist in Shanghai had published the sequence of the virus on January the 10th. If you have a sequence of the RNA of the virus, you can create a test. And so on the 27th of January, as I said, South Korean authorities get 20 biotech companies together. By February the 4th, the first biotech company has produced a test. The authorities in Korea accredit it within a single day, an amazing act of speed. By the end of February, there are four separate tests on the market in South Korea. But more to the point, by February the 7th, the Korean authorities are now testing everybody who is possibly a suspect. With the result, and the same story in Taiwan and other Far Eastern countries, with the result that the disease is crushed before it starts. There is no question as to which countries have been most successful. It's Taiwan, South Korea, Japan, and the other countries of the Far East. Not because of masks. Masks will have done no harm, but because of something much simpler. They started testing the moment they got their first cases. Uh, And uh, as importantly, uh, the hurdles to getting tests, making tests available, were done away with almost instantly. The regulatory process was instantaneous and very, very impressive. Uh, But that was because, of course, everything was being directed from the top. The South Korean president was very clear. 
uh, as the urgency of the situation. The vice president of Taiwan, as everyone knows, is an epidemiologist, and so it goes on. But it's more than that. Uh, what was going on in those Far Eastern countries, not just a very, very sensitive government apparatus aware of the need to deal with this, but also a huge biotech sector. One of the things we have all overlooked in the West is that the Far Eastern countries have about twice as much research and development as we do in the West as a percentage of GDP, and is almost all private, whereas, of course, as we know, governments fund a lot of research in the West. And so what happened when this crisis broke is that the governments had a vibrant, huge biotech industry in each of these countries simply to tap. They called them together and said, we want you to develop these tests in your company laboratories immediately, and we see our job only as getting the regulatory process accelerated. So this was a terrific triumph in the Far East of private free market science. The United States did not take advantage of the tests that had been developed in these countries. Why not? There were there two or three reasons for that. One of them, I'm afraid, does go right to the very top of the United States. Um, Barack Obama, building on the legacy of George W. Bush, so this is not partisan, this is a bipartisan remark. George W. Bush was very well aware of the dangers of pandemics, and Barack Obama was very well aware of the dangers of pandemics. And Barack Obama had established in the National Security Council a pandemic unit, not just to lead America's response to the next pandemic, to lead the world's response. Barack Obama saw the United States as the essential nation. He knew, we all knew, this is hardly mysterious, that pandemics are absolutely inevitable. There would be another one. After all, in the last 15 years, we've had SARS, we've had MERS, we've had Ebola, and of course, there's still AIDS. And so Barack Obama had established in the National Security Council the world's pandemic center. And this, I'm afraid, was degraded, decapitated, done away with, reduced in size, marginalized two years ago by Donald Trump. And that was perhaps the single most grave blow to the security of Americans and people around the globe that we've witnessed in the last couple of years. So what of the relationship between the public sector and the private sector when it comes to scientific inquiry? What's, what's different about uh, countries like Taiwan, South Korea, Japan uh, versus the United States or most of Europe? There's a very fundamental cultural difference. It's a very good question. And I'll put it in a sentence. In Taiwan and the Far East, the culture is that the job of science is to help society. So there is practically no government funding of research in those countries. Research is left entirely to the private sector where it flourishes. I mean, there's twice as much research there as there is in the West. So it certainly flourishes in the private sector. And the job of the government, and it sees itself simply to tap that science in the public interest when necessary. But our culture in the West is it's the job of society to support science. And so we have all these huge programs, NSF, NIH, ARPA, it goes on and on and on. 
by which the governments of the West tax their people to support science, whereas the governments in the East do not tax their people. It's industry that supports science, and very successfully, and the government simply taps that science when there's a national need. As of this recording, it was just two days ago that the FDA approved an at-home COVID-19 test, and some states, those tests are, are still illegal. Um, and the tests that were being developed by, I forget, either the CDC or the FDA, probably the, the CDC, uh, they discovered early on that they were doing a, a bad job of developing a test. They violated some protocols, and the tests ultimately uh, failed. Uh, so you know, where do we go from here in trying to uh, manage events like this? Well, there are two answers to this. First of all, on the subject of tests, uh, you only have to look at what happened in South Korea. South Korea produced so many tests so early that there was no nonsense about doing it at home. There were public test drive-in sites all over the country. These were based on McDonald's, they were based on Starbucks, and they were, of course, free. Any individual in South Korea could drive up to these places and get a free test. And so that was a test performed by professionals without the dangers of false positives and false negatives. And the way all civilized countries should go is by having tests performed in professional labs under these circumstances. Terence Keeley is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute and is a professor of clinical biochemistry at the University of Buckingham in the United Kingdom, where he served as vice chancellor until 2014. You have a right to know things about yourself and to engage with others to learn even more. So why is it so hard to learn your own COVID-19 status? Government agencies regulate what tests are available, and the regulation serves as a hurdle to allow people to know pretty important truths about themselves. Jeff Singer is a surgeon and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. We discussed the right to test last month. Just like we uh, assert everyone's fundamental right to self-medicate, which incidentally was uh, asserted by the authors of the Food, Drug, and Cosmetic Act uh, that created our current FDA uh, regulatory protocol back in the 30s, uh, we also have the right uh, to test to see what kind of medications we want to give to ourselves. It's basically an extension of our right to life. If we have a right to, to live our own lives and we own ourselves, we need to be able to get information about what we need to do to improve our health, protect our health, prevent ourselves from dying. So just as we have the right to give ourselves medications and treatments to prevent ourselves from getting unhealthy or dying, we also have the right and the necessity to test, to see what we need to give to ourselves if we need to give anything to ourselves. The uh, the current uh, regulatory regime that that emanates from Washington basically infringes on that right. We've been told that we cannot test ourselves until this central government in Washington, D.C. tells us if they think the test we're using is a good test. Now, 
I'm all for wanting to know whether the test I'm about to use is a good test. And uh, so uh, if, if there are not just the, the FDA, but any other certifying organization, testing organization, even write down a consumer, consumer reports, wants to evaluate tests so that I could have this information, I, that's something I want. So I appreciate that. But at the end of the day, I have a right to decide even if I'm told it's not a good test, whether or not I want to use it. And it all depends on my the, the amount of risk I'm willing to accept, the amount of uncertainty I'm willing to accept. These are personal decisions. And uh, it's not only uh, paternalistic, but it violates my rights to not let me test myself to see what, if anything, I need to do to help myself. So uh, last month, the feds uh, opened up the ability for states to determine what tests would be allowed within their borders. What did that change practically? Well, that was a, a really good move uh, because up until then, basically, uh, the this country was way behind other countries in getting tests out because of the uh, approval process required. So in, within states' borders now, uh, at least during the duration of this emergency, uh, the governors or the, uh, the state regulatory authorities could decide what tests are going to be allowed. That's an improvement. Again, it still doesn't give you complete uh, ability to make your own mind up regarding the test, but at least it localizes the decision. So you have a number of states that, for example, have approved uh, antibody tests, which are tests that tell whether or not you've been ex already exposed to the virus and perhaps have developed immunity. There's only one uh, approved test by the FDA, but many states have approved numbers of tests that are being used in, in several locations. Uh, for example, California, there's a, a, a test that was approved by within the state of California. It's being used now at the U Stanford University, University of Southern California, and they're doing random sampling tests of California residents to see how many people actually have, the, uh, have had the virus. The same thing is being done in Massachusetts uh, with researchers uh, uh, at uh, Massachusetts uh, Department of Health. So uh, we're seeing a lot of tests are available on a local level that if you waited for the uh, you know command and control from Washington to happen, you never get access to them. The most recent example of this, um, after we learned that at the end of February that the CDC's test and the CDC had a de facto monopoly on testing in the United States up until the end of February, that the test was defective. And then we realized, oh my goodness, we don't, we're way behind. We got to get going here. After we learned that, it would be, you know, very logical for a person to say, well, why don't we just use some of those tests that they're using in other countries that are proven to work? Uh, that's a good question. Well, now that that has been allowed, uh, just the other day, we learned that Governor Hogan of Maryland uh, greeted a Korean Airlines uh, chartered plane from Korea at Baltimore Washington Airport uh, that was that had 500,000 test kits that have, are being used in South Korea very successfully we all heard about the South Korea's uh, you know laudable testing program how how effective it has been so now residents of Maryland are going to be able to have access to the tests from South Korea now you notice the the FDA hasn't approved that it's in fact, uh, to my knowledge, uh, reporters asked at one of these task force briefings, why didn't you let uh, the World Health Organization's test be used here? And 
the best answer I heard to that so far is, well, they never asked the FDA uh, to uh, check it out and approve it. So they're waiting to be asked. Meanwhile, Governor Hogan didn't wait to be asked, and he got the tests in. So, and lots of cr- lots of credit is due to the first lady of Maryland for uh, helping make that happen. Oh well, that's that. I did not know that, but but that's uh, that's she is Korean and speaks fluent Korean. Oh, that's uh, right. That's right. Apparently, had a big role in uh, making that happen. I I, that's right. I remember that. But the 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 point is now because of this newfound uh, authority. Other states could do the same thing. Now, many uh, uh, advocates of, of uh, FDA reform for a number of years have been suggesting as one step in the right direction would be to allow for reciprocity. Uh, in other words, uh, within the European Union, uh, if uh, let's say the French version of the FDA approved a drug uh, for marketing, then if they wanted to market it in Germany or Italy, they didn't have to go through the approval process all over again because Germany and Italy recognized the, a drug approved by any other member of the EU. Uh, likewise, uh, New Zealand and Australia recognize uh, drugs approved by the US FDA. I think Singapore does as well. So there's a whole lot of this kind of reciprocity. So if we, meanwhile, um, a lot of Americans wait years to be able to use a drug that's been in use in some of these developed countries that. Uh, and are helping people there. You have to wonder how many people either suffer or maybe even die waiting for a drug that's available in other developed countries to become available here. So one proposal has been to uh, make a list of uh, countries that have a really good track record. You know, we could think of a lot of them like uh, Switzerland, several EU countries, Japan, uh, Israel, South Korea, perhaps, and say any uh, any uh, drug or test approved in those countries is approved in the United States. Dr. Jeff Singer is a surgeon and a senior fellow at the Cato Institute. The perception of threats Americans face have, to say the least, shifted as the coronavirus pandemic swept the planet. What should that mean for military spending versus other priorities? Cato Institute Vice President Chris Preble details defense spending during a pandemic. How has this pandemic changed the way uh, foreign policy people view threats? Well, I think it's a little too soon to say that that everyone's changed their mind, but I can see how it could change people's minds. Uh, first of all, that you know, for a long time, Americans were accustomed to not being um, in grave danger from foreign threats. This is one of our great uh, advantages over a lot of other countries around the world is you know, our neighbors to the north and south are friendly and weak, and we have fish to the east and west. And so the kinds of traditional security threats that most countries worry about basically all the time uh, we don't worry about those things. And it's precisely for that reason that um, over time, U.S. foreign policy professionals and elites have sort of defined uh, the, how we deal with danger at a greater and greater distance. So we don't want to be dealing with a potential invasion from, you know, through Mexico or through Canada. Uh, we want to deal with these problems far away. Well, uh, in some respects, that was a luxury uh, that we took advantage of for as long as we could. But then, uh, you know, we see this 
this disease, which is claiming, you know, 54,000 uh, today, as of today, um, and uh, it's the it's a kind of thing that we haven't experienced in a very long time, over 100 years, basically, since the Spanish flu. So uh, in that sense, we can see how um, a, a proximate danger has uh, superseded the most recent great danger, which is terrorism after 9-11. The other um, thing I'd add is that precisely the nature of this threat, this disease, has revealed certain vulnerabilities in the U.S. military response. Um, you know, the the case of the Theodore Roosevelt in Guam, the aircraft carrier, which got some attention because the captain of the ship was was fired by the Secretary of the Navy after making his concerns clear. But but from a military op- sort of readiness perspective, the the disease did what a Chinese anti ship missile has so far failed to do, which is to take a, an American aircraft carrier out of out of commission, out of service. So I think that um, also reveals some weaknesses or problems in U.S. military power that may factor in future discussions about how useful is uh, are the various military instruments and how vulnerable are they to disruptions like this. Uh, one of the funniest things I've seen uh, on the internet in the last couple of weeks was a what appeared to be a nuclear-armed submarine firing a missile hitting a virus. <laughs> yeah, I saw that picture too. <laughs> and it was... I, I, I'm not sure what the intent was exactly, but at the very least, uh, and you allude to it, there ought to be sort of a reshuffling of priorities when it comes to uh, how Americans view safety. So uh, going forward, is there anything we can say at this point with some confidence about what might emerge as a framework for doing that? Well, not yet. I mean, I think there are some who have made the case fairly um uh, emphatically, that we are overinvested in traditional military power, and therefore we should um, uh, divert some of those resources to public health resources and things like that. I, I think it's it's far too soon to say uh, that there's a consensus on that. Uh, I, I think there will continue to be strong support for military spending. I think the more uh, more proximate threat to military spending is deficits. Of, you know, the the massive increase in uh, federal spending to deal with the economic dislocation of COVID is almost certain to put downward pressure on the military budget. So I, I see that playing out much more so than uh, sort of a concerted effort to redirect resources from the military to public health. But I also think, and I, I wrote about this a few weeks ago, that the comparing side by side uh, military costs to the cost of the kinds of equipment that would have kept us safe or helped in dealing with the COVID crisis uh, put in pretty stark relief just how expensive some of these military uh, instruments are. Um, and you know, you know, a single tank could buy literally uh, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of masks, for example, something like that. I, I think you're likely to see more arguments along those lines, even as the this particular pandemic abates. Uh, that for the next time around, people will push much harder on the argument, well, we need to buy all of this military equipment and we don't need to worry about personal protective equipment or masks or uh, ventilators or ICU beds or things like that. I've had this similar conversation with with several different people uh, about the notion that our minds are, uh, in a sense, programmed to worry about relatively few risks 
in our lives. And um, to the extent that one becomes prominent, others must fall. So uh, to the extent that that has occurred, what, what do we know about how people are thinking about this risk versus the ones that uh, people were trying to get us to worry about before this? Well, what we do know is that human beings are a uniquely visual creature. Um, and so um, we are most frightened of things that we can see. Uh, you know, other animals use smell or hearing or whatever else, but but the fact that we cannot see this disease, we can see the effects of the disease. We can see people in hospitals. We can pe- pe- see people, you know, in the worst cases in, in coffins and things like that, but, but we can't see it. And so it's hard uh, for us to get our heads around that particular danger relative to much more visual um, threats like, you know, a terrorist attack uh, a bombing, you know, a, a building destroyed, things like that. We're we're much more likely to react to those kinds of incidents. The other factor that weighs in here is very high impact events. So a large number of people killed in a single event have a much more serious and longstanding impact upon our our psyche, our fears than a much, much larger number of people being killed over the course of six or eight weeks or six or eight months. So, so when we look at how, how humans assess risk as a danger to life, the, com- the combination of likelihood of an event and the magnitude of the event, we are much more likely to expect a reaction to uh, high visibility, low likelihood, but but high impact events, that likely will continue even when we emerge from this disease. If we ultimately conclude that this disease killed, say, 100,000 people who would not otherwise have died, let's just use that as a, as a number here in the United States. Who knows what the number actually will be? But but if we figure out that that's what that additional increment of, of deaths are from this disease, um, I don't think it will have the same impact as if um, 100,000 people had been killed by terrorism since 9-11. It's about the sort of high impact, uh, high, um, high, you know, very, very visual sort of thing. But by the same token, I do think that those of us who have been arguing about the more likely threats to human life, the the things that are more likely to kill you, there will be, I think, an adjustment in people's recognition that just focusing on very high, uh, uh, low likelihood, but high consequence events like terrorism at the expense of other things that are likely are more likely to kill you is probably a mistake. And that's something that, of course, John Mueller uh, at Cato has been talking about for a number of years. Alex Narasta has talked about it with respect to immigration, for example, and it's something that I've talked about. So I do think that we're in a moment where making an argument that assessing accurately, that it is incumbent upon policymakers to assess as accurately as possible the most likely uh, threats and dangers to their citizens and to design policies that are most likely to protect the highest number of people. That to me is the sort of the essence of uh, measuring the effectiveness of, of policy. Chris Prabble is a vice president for defense and foreign policy studies at the Cato Institute.
marijuana was completely illegal throughout the United States just a few decades ago. Since then, dozens of states have legalized cannabis for either medical or recreational purposes. But marijuana remains an illegal controlled substance under a 1970 federal law, so those who sell or grow it could still face federal prosecution. Jonathan Adler is editor of the new book, Marijuana Federalism, Uncle Sam and Mary Jane. He spoke at a Cato Live event in April. Uh, basically, over the last few decades, we've seen a, you know, dramatic changes in the legal landscape relating to marijuana. And this has occurred within the context of our federal system. And as, as much as any issue, it's illustrated uh, both some of the, the benefits of a decentralized federalist system, but also some of the problems that can arise when state governments and the federal government don't uh, cooperate and don't work together. Um, you know, 25 years ago, marijuana was illegal throughout the United States. Uh, and beginning in the 1990s, though, uh, some states initially began to legalize marijuana for medicinal purposes, um, uh, California being one of, among the first to, to do that. Uh, and then, as Trevor noted, in 2012, uh, Colorado and Washington state became the first states to withdraw fully uh, from the federal war against marijuana and legalized it not merely for medicinal purposes, but also for recreational purposes. Uh, since then, uh, another nine states and the District of Columbia have followed Colorado and Washington state's lead in decriminalizing, or sorry, legalizing marijuana for uh, recreational use. You have another uh, 20-some states that allow fairly broad medicinal use of marijuana You've had states reform their laws with regard to uh, certain uh, cannabis derivative products, CBD oils and the like. You've had some additional states uh, reduce penalties for low-level marijuana possession. And this has all occurred against the backdrop of maintaining federal prohibition of marijuana. And so we're seeing two things going on simultaneously. On the one hand, we're seeing a great experiment uh, in different states adopting different policies uh, and that's generating a lot of information about the pros and cons of marijuana legalization. Um, and we have a chapter in the book that looks at the preliminary data, and it's obviously still preliminary in terms of what the consequences of marijuana legalization are. Does it affect uh, various health health outcomes? Does it affect um, uh, you know, problems of, of kids in school? What does it do to youth use and use youth access? What does it do to alcohol use and so on? What does it do to crime? Um, and uh, so we're seeing this great experiment that's teaching us a lot, not merely about whether or not re uh, regulating or prohibiting marijuana is a good or bad idea, but also we're beginning to learn something about uh, how sm relatively small differences in state laws can actually make a difference in terms of the practical on the ground consequences. I think overall, um, thus far, the effects have been less than a lot of people predicted. Um, uh, Legalizing marijuana has not uh, produced nirvana. Uh, it has not produced uh, a chaos either, um, but it has uh, certainly uh, had had some effects. Um, but because marijuana remains illegal under federal law, uh, these experiments are somewhat distorted. Um, that uh, the federal government's continuing prohibition of marijuana uh, use, cultivation, possession, distribution. Uh, has effects on what occurs at the state level uh, and uh, creates uh, some problems. 
you know, we all know, you know, this being the Cato Institute, we don't have to remind folks that our federal government is one of limited and enumerated powers. Uh, but the Supreme Court has held that the Commerce Clause, supplemented by the Necessary and Proper Clause, can reach even the local intrastate uh, use and po possession of marijuana. Uh, but despite that holding, the reality is the federal government doesn't have the resources, doesn't have the will to try and be the, the cop on the street. Uh, and so we have the situation where a lot of activity is occurring at the state level that's technically illegal under federal law. Uh, but it's uh, for most people, they don't actually have to fear uh, criminal enforcement. Um, and some of the things that the book goes into, which we can talk about in some more detail, is that the federal prohibition doesn't affect whether or not an individual is worried about having a low level, a small amount of marijuana in their pocket. Uh, but it does affect the ability of a business to obtain financial services and banking services. It does affect uh, what a business can deduct on their uh, tax returns. It affects um, the way lawyers approach providing legal services to marijuana businesses. It, it can expose businesses to civil RICO exposure. So the fact that we have this differential treatment um, between state and federal law matters, uh, and even folks like Attorney General Bill Barr, who are not in favor of marijuana legalization, recognize that the status quo isn't stable, and that uh, if we're going to allow marijuana federalism, uh, we do ultimately need, need to make some changes in federal law. Jonathan Adler is editor of the new book, Marijuana Federalism, Uncle Sam and Mary Jane, which is available now. The COVID-19 pandemic has had dire effects on both public health and the economy. In reaction to the virus's spread, many states have implemented stay-at-home orders and closures of all non-essential businesses. National lockdowns have been mandated all over Europe. There are important economic questions raised as well. At a Cato Institute online event, adjunct scholar John Cochran detailed some of the failures that continue to stymie an economic recovery. So let me start with an unusual thought. We're actually lucky. <laughs> Uh, we live in the age of pandemics. Our globalized, urbanized economy is just an invitation to evolution. Uh, we've seen MERS, SARS, H1N1, Ebola, and AIDS. Um, and I think we will see more. Uh, this one was just bad enough to wake us up in the way the other ones have did not. But um, there are many worse out there. Um, the evolution in the virus don't care if one, 10, or 30% of us die from it. It just wants to pass it on. <clears throat> so one with this, this relatively low death rate compared to like cholera, uh, the plague, um, and uh, the other things that have hit us, I think in the end will be, I hope, enough to wake us up. We were shockingly unprepared. There, the failure here was the failure of our low-level bureaucracy. Uh, of the World Health Organization, the FDA, the CDC, uh, and, and you don't, you can just begin to think of all the screw-ups uh, that, that kept us from the appropriate response. I don't want to personalize it. It was always thus. It was this way around the world. Uh, only South Korea and uh, Singapore and Taiwan seem to have had a, a reasonable response. It was thus at Pearl Harbor. It was thus in 9-11. <clears throat> well, let this be the lesson to not get caught the next time when a 10% fatality one comes through. The economic lockdown is a panic button. 
It's the emergency. It's what you do when it's completely gotten out of control. There's a danger, though, that we start to think of this as the normal response, because as always, how we fought the last one becomes the new norm. No, this was a preventable disaster, and uh, we have to make sure that the response is to not do this again. How do you fight this right? You fight it early, hard, and fast. You test, you trace, you isolate, you lock down the hotspots. You don't shut down an entire economy. Um, but we, we were not even taking temperatures. Uh, just now we've woken up to find out that we don't have masks. The greatest industrial economy in the world is falling apart because we don't have five cent face masks. This doesn't need a big presidential plan and leadership. This needs a well-worked out and oiled low-level bureaucracy. The president doesn't sit at the exit of, uh, at the entrance to airports and take your temperature. The key is, as always, to get the reproduction rate below one, then it dies off. Uh, an important insight is that reproduction rate is not fixed in the virus. It's fixed a lot in human behavior, and it varies tremendously. We don't all have a reproduction rate of two. So the economic key is to stop the people and activities, the, the, huge, the, the small tail of enormously dangerous people and activities, um, not to stop absolutely everything. You, you want to stop the, the things that cause the highest danger at the lowest economic cost. Uh, and we, we've sort of realized that, duh. Uh, that's what uh, that's what isolating is about. The people who are sick are more likely to trade to spread it than the people who are not sick. Uh, group big group activities, crowded bars and clubs. Yeah, that's more dangerous. But that principle needs to be applied more generally, and that's what the detailed test, trace, contact trace, shut down hotspots, put out the embers, standard public health is is about. Uh, not shut down everything, not decide what's essential and doesn't. Essential turns out to be about a half, and then we're not really paying that much attention to the essential. They're, they're, said they're still not wearing face masks at grocery stores. Having failed, we've locked everything down, and this is posing an immense and needless economic cost. The longer the lockdown lasts, the more it will be permanent. If you stop everything for one or two weeks, that we could call that the great vacation. Uh, you stop, but then everything is prepared to get going right where it was. The problem is that the debt clock does not turn off. And as weeks and months go by, jobs are permanently lost, businesses are permanently shuttered, those productive activities aren't there, and what could be a V-shaped recovery turns into an L-shaped recovery. And even in the V-shaped scenario, there's going to be a big shift in demand for what people want in the future. Uh, what will, the viruses will be with us for a while and life will be different. So um, what we need now to get is to get the economy going. Um, and let's realize this won't end soon. Um, there will be lots of uh, inf uninfected people in the US. There will be a reservoir around the world. The virus is ready to start up again anywhere and, and, until you get a vaccine that vaccines everybody on the planet, which is uh, years away. Uh, it's ready to start, start up again. The U.S. tends to sort of dream of a, a uh, tech will come save us. Every day there will be a cheap test. A vaccine will come. Yes, eventually, but not now. Now what we need is that component that was missing in January. Uh, the cost is a trillion dollars a month. <laughs> we don't need reopen versus lockdown. We need to reopen smart. 
We need that combination of an economic and public health plan and the bureaucratic competence to execute it. Uh, testing, tracing, putting out the embers, locking down the hotspots. Uh, it's not something the president does. It's something that has to be done at the local level. Um, macro policies, what we're fighting with now is a river of federal cash. There's this tendency, like, like a two-year-old with a hammer, everything looks like a nail, and to fight the last war. So we're fighting 2008. We're spending right now uh, $2 trillion. Eventually, the forecasts are $6 trillion of direct borrowing. Um, that all has to be paid back. And it's immensely inefficient. Just as one example, the $1,000 checks that are going to every citizen. Well, they're going to 60 million Social Security recipients, those who have government jobs, those who have government pensions. Uh, all our plans have the big disincentives that will slow down the recovery that they had before. As one example, we're paying people more to stay home than they get from working. Uh, reasonable perhaps for a week or two, but not in the fall when you're trying to restart an economy. Our Fed is literally printing up $5 trillion of money to hand it out propping up prices so that no investor has to take a big loss. And I wonder where is the 2008 populist outrage at this? Well, not now, we're fighting an emergency, but that is and should come. And as usual, there's massive disincentives to all this. If we bail out industrial companies and airlines, like we bailed out the big banks in 2008, really bailing out their stockholders and bondholders, um, does that mean they're allowed to rack up big debts again? Does that mean financial markets are perpetually like a four-year-old on a bicycle needing the Federal Reserve to step in every time prices threaten to go down? Are we going to Dodd-Frank regulate everything in the wake of this? So please, this, this can't go on. <laughs> uh, and we can't wait for our government. We, we At least let's look forward and not wait for the debt crisis to hit the U.S. Uh, we have to do things a little bit efficiently and not normalize this as the, as the response. So we got to get through the summer, which needs us to reopen smart. Uh, we need to get through the fall, which means to turn off uh, the, the, the natural ideas of too much stimulus and the policies that keep the economy from going again. And then absolutely, next time we need to get ready for the next time. Uh, we need to fight this next time with a competent public health uh, uh, program, not an economic catastrophe. Build that competent bureaucracy. And let's not forget, in fact, you know, the country and California did have plans uh, on what to do. And, but we let those stockpiles vanish. California had mobile hospitals. Jerry Brown defunded them to save 5 million and instead spent 80 billion on a high-speed train. Uh, no, let's at least hope the memory that this is bad enough, the memory stays with us that we can uh, hit the next one properly with the public health, combined public health economics interventions, uh, and not let it spread to a big uh, lockdown. Economist John Cochran is an adjunct scholar at the Cato Institute. Due to stay-at-home orders during the COVID-19 pandemic, some states have relaxed restrictions on various goods and services, such as interstate medicine and alcohol sales. As states begin to allow businesses to reopen, will they also reinstate those old restrictions? Or should legislators look to remove those extraneous regulations altogether? In Visions of Liberty, a new edited volume from Libertarianism.org, each of the contributors dares to imagine a future free of the meddlesome and coercive hand of the state. 
a world where people can use their unleashed ingenuity and compassion to do amazing things for education, healthcare, finance, and more. Visions of Liberty is a dream of a world that might be one that is truly worth striving for. Visions of Liberty is available now at Cato.org and online retailers nationwide. That will do it for this edition of Cato Audio. I'm Caleb Brown. Talk to you again next month.